Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we'll, we'll be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. The title of this morning's sermon, if you have your bulletin there, take a note, you'll see this, that I may know Christ, that's taken directly from the text, and it is in not only our prayer, but the point of the text this morning. Let's look at the text together. Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Well, let's do quick review to remind ourselves where we were in Paul's letter to the Philippians before we took a one week break. The intent of Paul's intimate letter to the church of Philippi was to promote the furtherance of a Christ-centered gospel by fostering love for one another and encouraging joy in the Lord and cultivating unity among the believers in Christ. As they, the Philippian church and Paul, stood firm against opposition and suffering for the eternal glory of God. Two weeks ago in Philippians chapter 2, as we looked at 19 through 30, we saw Christ's willingness to be sent by the Father to care for the souls of men. Today, we see Paul revisiting two of the central themes of the book as the foundation by which he pleads with the saints to consider Christ. Listen to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 3, as Paul reestablishes these underlying themes. He says this in verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Those are the two themes right there that we want to Again, lay is the foundation that weave their way all through the book of Philippians. Paul's love for the saints, which we see in his term of endearment when he says, my brethren. And then joy in the Lord, which we see Paul again imperatively commanding us rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you. Paul loves the saints in Philippi. And once again, resurfaces through his language to the church. He says, my brethren, it's not only a term of endearment, as I mentioned, 
but it is preceded by a possessive pronoun. Both Tessa Rose and Georgia Grace, my youngest two daughters, call me my daddy. I love that. I take great joy in that. My daddy, can I have a drink of apple juice? Or as they say, appy juice? Or I love you, my daddy. It's just like it's part of the word. My daddy's all one word to them. I didn't coach that. It just came out. And I think Tessa's the one that did it first. And I think Georgia's just following her footsteps. Which may or may not be a good thing in the long run. As a matter of fact, just yesterday, Angie was saying in my presence, why can't I be my mommy instead of just mama? That possessive pronoun adds a little oomph to the meaning, right? There's a distinct sense of love and care when we are considered as belonging to someone. I am my daddy. And the Philippians were to Paul, my brethren. He loves them. But I also want us to see this theme of joy in the Lord that runs through the book. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. I mean, how many times have we seen this already in just the first two chapters and the first verse of chapter 3? There it is again. That rejoicing, Paul is almost in an annoying way reminding the Philippians of their obligation to rejoice in the Lord. And though it is a Christian's obligation to joy in the Lord, it is more of a delight and privilege than it is an obligation to rejoice in the Lord. It is what we should always do. And more than that, it is what we will do when we are daily communing with God. Despite the opposition that they faced, and despite the friction even among one another, Paul wanted to see the development of true joy among the believers in Philippi. This love for the saints and this joy for the Lord were essential for the church in Philippi to thrive as gospel light to the unconverted in their city. But what does Paul mean when he says in the rest of verse 1, to write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you. So the third thing that I want us to see this morning as far as laying a foundation for the rest of the text is this safeguard for believers, this repetitive thing that Paul says it's no trouble for him to write again. Paul makes it clear it's no trouble to him. And it's a safeguard for them. So what are the same things that he's writing about? And how how are these things a safeguard for the Philippians? Well, I believe that the same things that Paul is writing is a warning to the true believers to be aware of the Judaizers. Those Jews who would tell the Gentiles that they must be circumcised to be in Christ. This is not new to the church in Philippi. Everywhere that Paul has planted a church, as soon as he plants a church, immediately behind him comes this group of Judaizers. Those who would say that, yes, faith in Christ, but also you must be circumcised. And it is for their safety The people of Philippi, they're good that Paul repeats himself on this point. It is a safeguard for us to hear things over and over again until it sticks. This is consistent with the teaching of God's word, is it not? There's much application for us in this simple phrase this morning when Paul says to write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you. To hear things more than once is how things stick. 
A popular form of scripture memory for many of us at Grace Church is a method developed by a guy named Andrew Davis, a pastor in Durham, North Carolina. And it consists of reading the text multiple times until it sticks in our memory. And so if you just read the text over and over and over again, I think he suggests 10 times, but some, some of us it may take more for those gifted few, maybe less. But the process is just read the text over and over and over again until it sticks. And believe it or not, it works. It works no matter how old you are. Right, Rick? Psalm 119.11 says this, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. To hear something repeated over and over until it sticks in our minds and hearts is good for us. Because why? According to Psalm 119.11, it keeps us from sinning against God. Is that not a safeguard? The fact that Scripture memory repels sin is a safeguard. Who among us has not benefited from repetition? Who among us has not benefited from one of Rick's reminders as he gently grasps your shoulder with his big hand and squeezes, tilts his head a little bit to the side, makes eye contact and asks, are you gazing at Jesus? How many times have you heard that from Pastor Rick? Is Rick repetitive? Of course he is. Do we need to hear it a thousand more times? Absolutely. It is a loving reminder to get your soul happy in Jesus. So as a foundation for the remainder of today's text, we have to establish these themes, this love for the saints that Paul has, that we should have for one another, joy in the Lord that Paul demonstrates and that we should have for one another, and the pastoral reminder by Paul to heed the things that he has repeated to us as a safeguard for our souls. So all that's kind of the foundation on which we're going to build today. The rest of what Paul says stands on those things. So with the foundation set, let's look at the first thing that we want to see this morning. And that's Paul's warning against opposition. Paul gives us a warning. He gives the church in Philippi a warning, which by all means spills over to us today. There's Universal truths that apply to anybody, anytime, anywhere. Look with me in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Now this is not the opposition that Paul writes of in the first chapter. In chapter 1, there were men preaching the truth, but from wrong and selfish motives. This is not the same group of people that Paul tells us to be aware of here. Here we find those who are preaching something that is contrary to faith alone. The New American Standard calls them the first, excuse me, the false circumcision. This group is often referred to as Judaizers. Let's do a quick study of this false teaching that has made its way into all these Gentile cities that Paul has planted churches. You don't have to turn there, but let me read Galatians 2.14 to you. Again, Paul writing. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, 
how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul confronts Peter when this false teaching was deceiving him. And maybe more clearly we find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 13-15. For such men, these Judaizers, Paul writes, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Here, Paul says that the false apostles, they are, excuse me, that they are false apostles and deceitful workers who disguise themselves. That's aggressive language that Paul uses, the same language that he uses in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, beware three times. And the terminology in Philippians chapter 3 verse 2 is brutal, it's forceful, it's filled with sarcasm and teeming with a ton of meaning. His, there's a play on words here that's very rich in verse 2. So let's take a closer look at it. When he says, beware of the dogs, the word dog is a term used to refer to low-life scavengers. If you've ever had the privilege of being in a third world country where you see these dogs travel in packs, they feed off leftover trash or the weak and helpless. Countless times while in Nigeria, I think, I thought of this verse and I would see these dogs sifting through giant, Trash piles. Dog was a common term that the Jews used to refer to the Gentiles as a whole. And he calls the Judaizers dogs here. A term usually reserved by them for the Gentiles. Meaning that the Judaizers are the actual unclean scavengers. Trying to make Gentiles clean. Do you see the the irony there? Through their false circumcision. In the second beware, similar to his letter to the Galatians, he describes these Jews as evil workers. He says their work is evil. Or in Galatians, he says deceitful. And finally, the third beware is the true description of these evil workers. They are those teaching a false need for circumcision. Except the wording Paul uses here is not circumcision. The New American Standard says false circumcision, but the ESV and King, King James Version state it more accurately as mutilation or mutilation of the flesh. That's literally the Greek word that's used here. Not circumcision, but mutilation. But he's referring to circumcision. Now, I don't do this often, but let give me just a minute to, uh, to uh, explain to you the Greek wording here. The Greek word for circumcision is peritome, meaning to cut around. But the word Paul uses here is katatome, which means to cut to pieces. Now, they were meaning circumcision. Literally, the the thought process is to cut around. But Paul is saying to them, it's more like katatome, to cut to pieces. The word mutilate is also used in the Old Testament. Think 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 28, which refers to the followers of Baal who cut themselves to invoke their God to respond to them. Maybe you remember that story. And though they are preaching a circumcision that leads to salvation, in actuality, they are propagating a mutilation of the flesh that leads to a mutilation of the heart. That's what Paul's trying to communicate. Paul uses the same language 
when he talks about this group of people in Galatians chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. He says, if they're going to circumcise themselves, I wish they would go the whole way and just mutilate themselves. Again, strong language that Paul uses in opposition to those asking Gentiles to be circumcised. The language here is very strong. Asking those who believe in this to mutilate themselves. Without saying too much, I think that you get the picture, right? What Paul's trying to communicate. It's not soft language. This was, excuse me, this was one of the ways Paul describes those Jews who were teaching that for the Gentiles to become a true believer, they must not only believe in Christ and Him crucified, but they also must be circumcised. Now, the actual act of circumcision is of no spiritual significance to the New Testament believer. It has no value, spiritually speaking. The true gospel does not teach that a physical act has any bearing on our spiritual conversion. Galatians 5.2, Paul says this, as he's arguing the same case to the churches in Galatia. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision... Christ is of no benefit to you. If you think circumcision will save you, then Christ is of no value to you, is what Paul is saying. Man is not saved through circumcision, but through faith in Christ. Faith in Christ's sinless life. Faith in His crucifixion. Faith in His death. Faith in His burial. Faith in His resurrection. And I submit to you that you must be putting your faith in nothing less and in nothing more than that same gospel. Anything that adds to the true gospel is a false gospel. In reality, people may add to the gospel things that men can accomplish or do in their own power, but there's nothing salvific about it. As a matter of fact, when we begin to add requirements to the gospel other than faith and repentance, we are actually stripping ourselves of the true gospel and creating our own false gospel, and it cannot save. This is what Paul is so strongly warning the church in Philippi against. Don't buy into this at all. But vehemently oppose this, is Paul's plea. He says, beware of these people. And then he contrasts them as we continue in the text. Look with me in verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's look closely at these three descriptions of true circumcision or true saints. First is this, who worship in the Spirit of God. Spirit-wrought worship. The true believer worships in the Spirit of God. Not, Not like those who perform all their religious acts without life. Do you know that it's perfectly possible for you to step foot in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and do the same things that we all do? Pray, hear Scripture read, read Scripture, listen to prayer, preach, sing. You can do all those things. And not have an ounce of life in you. We must be careful here to know that we are in Christ. And not doing all our service to God in vain. 
All our prayer and singing, all our service must be birthed out of faith in Christ. The true believer is stirred in his innermost affections of his soul through the direction and assistance of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is not at work in you, then all you do is in vain. The true saint who is filled with the Holy Spirit, you will find tucked away in his closet with his hands and eyes lifted up to God, bathed in tears, imploring God for more mercy. The true saint comes before God with heartfelt thanksgiving. The true saint pours his soul out before before God for spiritual blessings in Christ. And he does all those things because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's in you, those are the things that you do. That's how you worship God in spirit. The Holy Spirit must be the active peace in our worship of God. You cannot worship God apart from the Holy Spirit. Who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. The true believer glories in Christ Jesus. He rejoices in Christ. The world may have their joys. Being amused by the things of this world, pursuits of wealth and earthly pleasures. For some, the pride of life encompasses them or the acquisition of knowledge satisfies. While others skirt through life, avoiding as much trouble as they can, seeking only to be comfortable. We must be careful of these things, that this is not us, but that we find our greatest joy in Christ. Listen to me, saints. This world does have a lot to offer. There are a lot of things that we can enjoy. And that's all right. So long as in our enjoying of them, we see that they're profitable to our soul. But we must find our ultimate and true delight in Christ and in Christ alone. As Charles Simeon says it, we find our joy in a far, excuse me, in a far higher nature. The name Jesus is precious to us. Our richest gratification that we can possibly enjoy is gazing at the glory and excellency of Christ. This should be a exercise of ours. It should be what we do as saints. It's not what the super Christian does. It's what the Christian does. It's not unique. To the believer, it should be normal for the believer. If what I'm saying to you right now, believer, is something that you struggle to experience and taste, then let me plead with you to get before God and ask Him to be merciful to you and to give you you Himself. Perhaps grab a book on the glory of Christ and read over the, read it over the holidays. I would personally personally recommend John Owen's The Glory of Christ. Get the Puritan paperback because it'll be easier to read because if you get the thicker version, uh, sometimes he can be a tough read. But get the Puritan paperback of John Owen, The Glory of Christ. Oh, how disappointed I am when I waste my time on the empty pleasures of this world. When I experience one hour of fellowship with the Son of God. In comparison to those things. Listen to me. I'm standing before you this morning. Not as somebody who's perfected this. Or feel like, feels like he's arrived. Or has, a, has any right to, to look down upon you. And 
plead with you to do these things and know that in my own heart, I'm desperately weak in this measure and I need more of Christ. Listen to me. Grace Church, what are we doing? What are we doing if we're not going hard after Christ? What are we doing if we're allowing the the pleasures of this world to entertain us and to rob us of that hour of joy with God? When was the last time that you have tasted this sweet fellowship of God that Paul talks about in Philippians 3.3? When was the last time that you were tucked away in the closet and just worshipped our God? The nearness of God is our good. Paul also says this. Not only are we to worship in the Spirit of God and to glory in Christ Jesus, but we are to put no confidence in the flesh. The true believer puts no confidence, no confidence in his own flesh. We must be careful not to trust in our own abilities, our own accomplishments, our own knowledge, our own riches, our own strength, our own goodness. Our own desires. When we put confidence in the flesh, we make ourselves out to be God. This is the oldest sin in the Bible. The fall of man began with this great sin. Confidence in the flesh. The true saint knows that he has no hope but God. Though the flesh remains... We can't deny that. The true saint relies upon the grace of God to sustain him. We must be confiding in the atoning sacrifice of God. That's how we don't put confidence in the flesh. We must be leaning on the intercession of Christ. That's how we don't put confidence in the flesh. We must renounce self-confidence and make Jesus our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption. Listen to how Paul describes his personal privileges and accomplishments as we continue in the text. Paul says, hey, if anyone else has confidence in the flesh, Paul says, if anyone has a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I do. He says, I have far more. Then listen to his reasons to boast in the flesh. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Those are all things that Paul inherited. He grew up into those things. And then listen to what he says. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. First, I want us to look at those four inherited privileges that Paul mentions. Circumcised the eighth day. Notice that he lists his circumcision first. He's not letting go of this. He's got circumcision by the throat right now. And he's going to choke it out until the Philippians believe what he's saying. And listen to me. Though circumcision may not be an issue in our day. Being choked out by the things of the world is. Notice that he lists circumcision first. As a sign that he belonged to the covenant people of God. Most men were not born into this privilege. But Paul was. 
And then he says this, of the nation of Israel. He does not call himself a Jew here, but an Israelite. The chosen race of God. He's using Old Testament language to describe himself because he wants them to know what his heritage is. Of the tribe of Benjamin, he says. Benjamin was the son of Jacob's wife, his favorite wife, Rachel. And the only son born in the land of promise, according to Genesis 35. The first king of Israel came from Benjamin. Both Jerusalem and the temple were within the borders of the tribe of Benjamin. So when Paul says of the tribe of Benjamin, that's what he means. Even among Hebrews, even among the Israelites, even of those who've been circumcised the eighth day, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. More bragging rights for Paul. Paul was laying on thick his social position. And then he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. The meaning here most likely means that he grew up worshiping in a Hebrew church rather than a Greek one where he spoke Hebrew. Because even even in Israel, there would be Greek churches that existed where Greeks were there. Or in other cities outside of Jerusalem, as as Christianity began to spread, excuse me, as Judaism began to spread, there were even Hebrew congregations in cities. And Paul said, that's all I've ever known. I come from those Hebrew congregations, those elite. And then Paul lists his personal achievements. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. As to the law, a Pharisee. Paul was, according to his knowledge of the law, a Pharisee. The strictest sect of their religion. And he learned from Gamaliel, the leading Pharisee of their day. He came from the cream of the crop. He sat under the leader of all Pharisees. And he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul proves his zeal for the cause by claiming that he was a persecutor of the church, which we know to be true. The evidence of this feat is well known throughout Scripture. He didn't just have a knowledge, but his actions matched what he knew. This kind of zeal was viewed as godly zeal by the Pharisees who would hearken back to Phineas in Numbers 25 as a standard of zeal and motivation to persecute the church. They wrongly did so, but they did so. And Paul says, I had that kind of zeal, the same kind of zeal that Phineas had for God. Totally misguided, but still zeal nonetheless. And as to the righteousness which is in the law, Paul says, found blameless. As far as, a, as observable conduct could be considered, Paul was blameless. Meaning that as Pharisees judged one another on outward appearance and acts, Paul was found to be without fault. He was at the top of the list of who's who among Jews. But Paul says that all these fleshly accomplishments he has no confidence in, in light of knowing Christ. If anybody could have put a list together, Paul just did it. And he says, in light of that, I have no confidence in those things. In light of knowing Christ. Well, look with me in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. As we consider now the excellency of knowing Christ. This is where we want to aim this morning. This is the heart of this morning's message. The excellency of knowing Christ. Paul now fixes his gaze on Christ. Everything that he said was building up to this. And now 
he, he fixes his eyes squarely on Christ and he just erupts into worship as he begins to write to the Philippians, beginning in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. There is nothing greater than knowing the superiority, the brilliance, the the greatness, the the merit, the the caliber of Christ, his preeminence, his supremacy. But not just to know those things mentally, but to know Christ intimately. So I want us to look at the excellency of knowing Christ in two ways. One, the value of knowing Christ. The value of knowing Christ. Listen to all the mathematical terms that Paul uses to contrast fleshly accomplishments to being in Christ. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and Count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Did you get all that? Those words that I emphasize? I don't know how many it is. I didn't count. But that's just two verses worth. Does this language not appear elsewhere in relation to Christ? So many are looking back at their earthly possessions and their worldly position and start counting the losses. That's not what Paul's doing. He's not looking around saying, well, if I follow Christ, I'm going to lose this and this And I won't have this position anymore. He's not looking back at what he's lost or what he will lose. What does Luke 14, 28 say? For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? We can't take our gaze off the allures of this world. Excuse me, let me rephrase that. We can't take our gaze off Christ and onto the lures of this world and think that we're going to value Christ the way that he should be valued. He's the greater prize. But if we keep looking back at these other prizes, far less, if you even want to call them prizes, they're far less than that. And again, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, Jesus says this as he's teaching. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went out and sold all that he had and bought it. Is this not the same language? Is this not what Paul is calling us to do? Have you placed the proper value on Christ? Have you placed placed proper value on Christ? What are the competing attractions? What are the competing attractions to Christ in your life? Are your children a competing prize? Is your job or your finances? Is your social status? Is pride standing in the way of your valuing Christ properly? Is your comfort the great prize of denying Christ? In the end... 
None of these things are the great competing idol to God. We sang earlier when we sung the song, I'd rather have Jesus. Excuse me, when we sang the song, I'd rather have Jesus. The first line of the chorus says, than to be the king of a vast domain. I'd rather have Jesus than be the king of a vast domain. You know what the problem with that lyric is? It's a great lyric. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it. The problem is, we'd settle to being kings of very, very tiny domains than have Christ. Vast domains aren't the competition. Tiny ones are. And we like to say that the competing prizes for Christ are all these things. But at the root of all the things that compete with Christ in our lives, at the root of all the competing idols is the greatest idol known to God. Self. The greatest idol opposing God is self. We may call it other things because that sounds good to people, right? It sounds like it's something outside of us that's the problem. Well, the competing idol for me is new clothing. Well, that makes it sound like it's the new clothing's fault. When in reality, the competing idol is your love for clothing, right? And that's just a silly example that I used. It's not in my notes, I just grabbed it. If it convicts you, then maybe that was intended for you. It sounds all right to say, I'm trying to make sure that following my favorite sports team is not an idol. When what you really mean is, I believe that my enjoyment of that is a rival to my enjoyment that I would receive in Christ. My interests rival the interest of Christ. In the end, the question still remains, what is the value of Christ to you? And underneath that is the value of Christ is determined by your relational knowledge of Him. See, Christ's value is not based upon what we think of Christ. But the value that we see in Christ is based upon our relationship with Him. If I have no relationship with Christ, it doesn't mean He's not worth supreme value. It just means I don't see Him as worth supreme value. He's worth supreme value. Listen again to the text as we identify the language that marks Paul's value of Christ. See if these are true of us. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul says all things are lost and I consider them rubbish. Are we willing to lose all things for the sake of Christ? For the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that we may gain Christ. There is no mere uninterested knowledge of Christ here. This is not a scholar's take on Jesus. This is intimately knowing him. Knowing Christ, the image of the invisible God. Knowing the great work of his salvation. It is the sublimest joy known to man. Christ is Satan's ruin. 
Christ is the church's one sure foundation. He is the promised Messiah. Christ is infinitely transcendent. He is our sanctuary. Christ is the love of God demonstrated. He is unparalleled in beauty. His brilliance is uneclipsed. He is the Lord of all. Christ is unique in glory. He is exalted above all. He's resplendent in justice and mercy. Christ has no equal. Because according to Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, even in heaven, and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Out of knowing God, we desire that our life accurately reflect Him. The great work of our lives is to get to know God in Christ. God is the most impressive being that there is to know. And if you know God through Christ, it's impossible. If you really know God through Christ, it's impossible to have any rival to Him in your life. We must have a passion for Christ. Do you know this Christ intimately? Do you commune with Him often? Listen to me, listeners, this morning. See the value of Christ today. See the value of Christ today in His Word. But I want you to see that this is more than theory for Paul. This knowing Christ has not been relegated to some simple considering of things that are lost. But for Paul, it was an actual suffering loss of all things. Look with me in verse 8 again. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Listen to what he says. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He's not just considering his willingness to suffer. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Whatever things for me were gain, these things are now because of Christ, loss. That's what Paul's saying. Whatever things were gained, those things are now lost because of Christ. But here's the kicker for Paul. And I pray this to be true for us. The net worth of all these things that Paul lost were of zero value to him. They were of zero value to Paul. So long as he gained Christ. Paul knew to be rich in Christ meant to be rich in Him alone. Let me tell you, those who flourish, those, those believers that we're drawn to because of their godliness, they've discovered that to be rich in Christ means to be rich in Him alone. They don't want anything else. That's why they've got more of Him. And the reason that we stumble along and struggle and don't love Christ the way that other believers love Christ is because we're trying to hold on to things that we don't want to lose. 
It was all of Christ and his grace and nothing of self-confidence for Paul. Grace plus something, according to Romans chapter 11, is not grace at all. That's the value of Christ. Let's look at the rest of the text as we continue into verse 9. I want us to see this. In our trying to capture the excellency of knowing Christ, we've looked at the value of knowing Christ. Now let's look at the reward of knowing Christ. Verse 9. That I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That verse is loaded. The The rewards of knowing Christ, rather than simply knowing of Christ, are immeasurable. There's a lot of people who know of Christ that have no reward from that. But knowing Christ intimately is something vastly different. The rewards of knowing Christ intimately found in the text are not comprehensive of all Scripture, but they are worth our look this morning. So I want us to see the the terminology right there at the beginning of verse 9. And may be found in Him. That we may be found in Christ. Being found in Christ means that we are hidden in Christ. We sang about that this morning too, right? The end of... The second to last line in before the throne of God. My life is hid with Christ in high, excuse me, on high. Being found in Christ means we are hidden in Christ. It means that we can now be found living our entire lives in the sphere of who Christ is. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Well, we can establish a few things from Philippians 3.9. One, you can't obtain righteousness on your own. Not through the law, not through your good works. It's impossible. Righteousness comes from one place, from God, through faith. So the second thing that I want to see is the reward of knowing Christ is that we have faith wrought righteousness. Here we see the continued contrast between Law and flesh and spirit and faith. True righteousness cannot be had apart from Christ. A works-based righteousness or a righteousness that comes from keeping the law, which, by the way, is impossible, is man-made anyway and insufficient for salvation. But a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith is the righteousness which is imputed to us by Christ and therefore does save us from the judgment of God. And then listen to this. This is another one of those profound points that sometimes if you just sit and stare at the words, you can't get beyond what's right there. It's profound yet plain and simple. The reward of knowing Christ is that we may know Christ. Now let me explain. The greatest reward of knowing Christ is the simple yet profound truth that we may know God in Christ. Have you thought about that? Through faith in Christ, we can know God. Is that not landing on anybody? We can know God. Us. Feeble. Wicked. Helpless. Us. 
can know God. We can know God. Does that not blow your mind? We can know God. And knowing God is not some form of mysticism. It's concrete. We can know Christ concretely through the power that comes from believers. Excuse me, comes to believers through Christ. Through his death and his resurrection. Look with me in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. That I may know him, that I may know Christ, that I even have the privilege to do that. Or the ability is amazing. How? That I may know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. We can know Christ through the resurrection of Christ. This truth is twofold. We can know Christ in this life because we have been raised to walk in newness of life. We've been made alive. We've been regenerated. But we also know that we will know Christ for all eternity because we, be, we will be called up with Christ in heaven on the day of His return. That I may know Christ and the power of His resurrection. And the fellowship of His sufferings. Now I want to spend just a minute here this morning. What does it mean to know Christ and the fellowship of His sufferings? Paul's always telling us to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And yet, in the same book, he keeps mentioning this suffering theme. How do the two merge together? How do they find themselves together? We can rejoice in sufferings, not because suffering is enjoyable, but because it is certain evidence that we have an intimate relationship with the Lord. If you suffer for the sake of Christ, then you can take great joy and delight in knowing that you know God intimately. Because he says so in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Through our suffering, the significance of Christ's suffering is made known to the world. Your suffering for the sake of the gospel helps demonstrate the gospel. Your suffering reveals what God is like. Your suffering is a way to overcome non-believers' view of Christians as arrogant because we hold in absolute truth and salvation through Christ alone. One of the most important things today is for the lost world to come to know Jesus Christ is, is going to happen through the suffering of believers. I'm convinced that the Muslim world most likely will not be converted without the suffering of the saints. It's just not going to happen. When we identify with people through suffering, the gospel will begin to take root. When we suffer, it deepens our impact. When we suffer, it helps us to understand the deep truths of God. When we suffer, it increases our credibility. I like the way Ajith Fernando says it. He says, when you're hanging on a cross, 
You don't have to say too much. When you're suffering for the sake of Christ, your words can be few, yet your testimony can be rich and strong. But even more rewarding for us than the reality that others will know Christ through our suffering is that we will know God ourselves more intimately through our suffering. When we suffer, we know God. That I may know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. And then listen to what the text says. Being conformed to His death. Or as the ESV says, becoming like Him in His death. We cannot be raised with Christ if we have not first died with Him. It's the logical order. Paul teaches that in Romans 6, which we've studied before as a church. Our knowing Christ and the power of His resurrection is directly tied to our being made like Christ in His death. And I think the last verse puts it all in perspective. Philippians 3.11. Let me go back to 7 so we can read it through and and have our thought process in line with what Paul's writing. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's hope is not just in this life, but in the one to come. This last verse puts it all in perspective. Knowing Christ in this life means being conformed to His death, in order that we may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In Luke chapter 20, verse 35, that our group, even though we didn't get to meet this week, should have studied through, Luke chapter 20, verse 35, tells us that to be worthy to attain the resurrection from the dead, we must put our faith in Christ. Our faith must be in Christ. What makes us worthy of such attainment? Faith in the person and work of Christ and knowing Him intimately. We must put our faith in Christ and then grow in our knowing Him intimately. That's what it means that I may know Christ. To know Him intimately and Him alone. Let's pray.